Welcome back to another episode of Insight SFPS. My name is Cody Donarski, Public Information Officer for Santa Fe Public Schools. And today my guest is Miss Lisa Randall. Miss Lisa Randall, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me here today. This is exciting. Of course. Happy to have you. So just because I don't know your position exactly, I know what you do and we've worked together a lot, but what exactly is your position with the district? So I am the district sustainability program coordinator. Sustainability coordinator. So everything green, everything I know you do with recycling and energy and the solar, all those beautiful solar uh, rays or rays you see in the, uh, around the district that all comes from you, right? That's right. Awesome. So we'll get started. So originally you are from sort of my neck of the woods up in the Northeast. You're from Maine, correct? Yeah. Maniac. Maniac. I'm a maniac. And then from Maine. So that's where you grew up, went to high school. Um, and then you graduated and moved to upstate New York. Yeah. I would call that upstate. Well, I, I spent my entire, um, K 12 years in Maine. Mm -hmm. My mom still lives in the house I grew up in. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. It's pretty cool to go back and visit and a little surreal all at the same time. I went to college in upstate New York, Skidmore college. Mm -hmm. And from there, from there, I spent a year in central America building houses. Uh, and I became a bit of a wanderer at that point. So I spent lots of time in various States throughout the U S. So when you were in central America, was that, did you do that on your own? Were you with a group? Was that with, like, I know Jack Lane worked with like the Peace Corps and was down in, in Guatemala there. Is that kind of what you had done or, or how, how did you end up in central America? It was with a private group, architects and planners in solidarity with Nicaragua. And if you know about the Nicaraguan struggle for independence and self-rulership, um, that was happening in the eighties. And I went to help build houses and support the revolution. I really believe that, you know, self-determination and, and equal opportunity for all was what mattered and what was important. And that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a great opportunity to go there and do that each and every day. That's awesome. So when you, after Central America, what, what was your kind of next step? I came back uh, to the U.S. and I have to say I was a little um, wondering what I should do with my time. And, you know, there's there's so much about our country that's amazing and there's so much about our country that we need to change. And so um, I really wanted to be in a place that was questioning, that was growing, that was evolving, uh, that wasn't making assumptions. I wanted to be with people who cared about all and cared about equal access and, and cared about respect for everyone and opportunity for everyone. So that wasn't necessarily readily available. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I spent a lot of time traveling. I, you know, I, I guess I was uh, a radical hippie in a bunch of ways, just kind of going from place to place and making myself useful and learning and growing at the same time. What was the favorite place that you kind of spent during that period of kind of wandering where, what was your favorite place that you had visited or spent time or did anything in? I think Vermont, mm-hmm. um, there were just a lot of people, like-minded folks who were trying to make the world a better place and use their talent and their time and their energy to do that. And I met a lot of folks who were just doing good things. They'd wake up each day and, um, you know, do what they could to uh, achieve their dream. Vermont's such a unique place. I'd gone skiing in Killington in the winter um, and it's just so different. And even, you know, being from New York and driving through kind of the upstate part, you know, everyone pictures New York as this concrete jungle, but right. once you get past like Westchester and Orange County, it's very different. Absolutely. Um, but it's just such a unique place. It's so different. I remember I was staying at my buddy's place and 
we would snowmobile to get food. Yeah. We went to breakfast and, you know, (laughs) people would park their snowmobiles outside. You wouldn't see any cars. You would just see snowmobiles and, you know, it it was just such a unique experience and it's definitely a, a different place than anywhere else that I've ever been. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, when you live rurally and I think it's, it's that way in New Mexico, you realize you have to depend on one another. Mm -hmm. You have to be there for each other because life is harder when you live rurally and you don't have uh, a store or a gas station. Or, or a charging station right down yeah. the street, right? And so you you realize that you need each other. Yeah. And it builds a social fabric that is really beautiful. It, it's definitely neighbors help neighbors. Yeah. And I remember we had gotten there and my buddy's dad had chopped a bunch of wood the week or two before that he had gotten there. And his neighbor came by and was like, Hey, do you need any wood? He's like, you know, I got a bunch. And he's like, yeah, I'm actually running low. I was going to run out, you know, back into town, which was probably 30, 45 minutes away by car and not including like the snow and ice and, you know, whatever weather conditions you had to overcome on the way. Um, and he's like, yeah, I'll take some, like, you know, I'll get you back. I'll pick you up another quarter two. Um, and it, it was just such a unique experience to to see people just rely off of each other and not rely on everything around them. Like I rely on Smith's and Target <laughs> and, you know, Chipotle and all the yeah. things around me. And when you live in such a rural area, you rely on your neighbors yep. and, and it's such a, a unique experience. So I, I definitely can see that. Well, it's a different use of resources too, and a different uh, appreciation for resources. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think when we think about sustainability, you know, that's part of that, you know, kind of circular thinking, how, how can we share this? How can we produce this? How can we use this in the most efficient way? How can we reuse this? How can we share this resource that is limited? And I think when you live rurally, you have to think like that one, because you don't necessarily have the fiscal resources to just go out and be um, wasteful, but also because you realize the value of things. Yeah. You appreciate Um, everything you have much more than, you know, you do in the city. And I'm, you know, hand up. I live in the city. I've lived in a an urban area for, for most of my life. And it's, it's totally true. You know, you, you become wasteful and, you know, luckily my parents took me camping when I was younger. And even that, when you, the closest grocery store is 45 minutes away, you aren't wasteful because you can't just drive five minutes down the road to pick up bread or pick up milk or pick up eggs. Like you really do cherish the goods that you have. Well, I remember when I told my mom uh, about this job and she said, well, what do you do? And I explained a little bit to her and she She said, oh, interesting. So basically you try to get everyone to live the way we did when I was a kid (laughs) and the way that I used to try to get you to live, like turn out the lights, don't be wasteful, close the refrigerator door. Like, yeah, yeah, that's part of it. Yep. (laughs) So so would you say that's where kind of the, your sustainability came from is from your mom? Like, was it stuff that seemed to be ingrained in you from a young age? I think both my parents, Mm -hmm. um, they both grew up um, very close to the bone, as you might say, and didn't have a lot of resources and grew gardens, right? Grew their own food, hunted uh, for their own food, gathering eggs in in northern Maine, you know, with with no uh, central heating. You know, those leave a mark. And so my parents were very appreciative of what they had, uh, but they also wanted to make sure that we didn't take things for granted and that we understood the value of things and the value of working hard and earning your way. And I'm extremely appreciative. I think the thing I'm most grateful for from them is a work ethic. Mm-hmm. And, and 
them instilling in me that that mattered yeah. and that it's important to carry your own weight when, when you can, how you can. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, when you have to be out chopping wood because that's your source of heat. Yep. You know, my guess, if I had to take a shot in the dark, you probably didn't have central air or heat. Uh, we had a big boiler in the basement, which cost a whole lot of money. So we burned a lot of wood. Yeah. I was going to say we probably chopped wood, wood yeah. we stacked wood, we carried wood. You bet. Yeah. So from a very young age. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> so after you graduated college and you, you kind of went about your wandering of the U S what brought you to Santa Fe? What, or New Mexico, what brought you to this part of the country? I had a friend, um, or the group I was traveling with, we had a friend who just had a baby and the dad really didn't want to be involved and she needed help. And we had the means and, um, I'd say the lack of commitment anywhere else to be able to just hit the road. And, uh, we lived up in Chimayo and we helped her with the baby and, and helped her take care of the, uh, the house and the commitments and worked odd jobs to bring in money. And I felt like I was home, frankly. Um, Chimayo was so much like the town that I grew up in. Folks who all knew each other, who took care of each other, who lived simply, who lived rurally. And um, I didn't know much about New Mexico being a Mainer. And it was my first time here. And that was back in the late 80s. And I just loved it. It felt like home right away. It's interesting. Um, I Anyone who's listened to every episode of the podcast might find that there's been a theme. And I promise it is not intentional. But the last three or four episodes have all had connections back to New York and, and the Northeast. Mm. Um, so, you know, the reoccurring theme is that, you know, a lot of people are just like transplants here from the Northeast. And they, listeners have heard me say that my dad had always told me, like when I said that I was going to move out here is that you're going to miss the green, you're going to miss the grass. Um, you're going to get sick of the dirt and the sand or whatever. And like, there hasn't been a day nope. that goes, that goes by that. I'm like, man, I miss grass. I miss cutting grass in, yeah. you know, 90 degrees and a hundred percent humidity. I, I love this landscape. I yeah. love, yep. um, this part of the country yep. and it, it's so unique and so different. And I feel like maybe that's why us Northeasterners are so drawn to the Southwest is it's almost drastically 180 degrees different than where we're from. We're used to trees and these hills yeah. and like ocean and, and, and every mile wide lakes. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and out here it's not like that. And I think part of me, I had always had a draw to the Southwest because you would see it in TV and in the movies and it just was so different. And I'm like, I want to be somewhere that's different than what I know. Yeah. Um, I never wanted to be in an area that I was familiar with. I wanted to push myself and push my boundaries and push my knowledge of what I knew and what I was used to. So I think a big part too, is the people, mm -hmm. um, there's just something incredibly special about New Mexicans and, and Northern New Mexico is where I've spent most of my time, um, when I've been in New Mexico and, um, the warmth, uh, the humor, this kind of can do spirit, no matter the odds, mm -hmm. The embracing of other, like I, I just, um, feels I, very family. It does. It, there just was, uh, an embracing of who I was, um, 
immediately. Yeah. And I think what's even greater is that they don't care if you came from somewhere else. It's almost like a, you're here now. So you're, you're family with us. Um, and so many people when, you know, I'm obviously very not open about where I'm from, but you know, I talk about being from New York and, and coming here and people are like, well, you're here now. And, and this is home and this is home to me and home to so many of us that have moved here, ended up here at some point in our life. Um, so then how did you, so you were, you came here with a friend and, and helped take care of the baby and worked a bunch of odd jobs. How did you end up at the district? Did one of those odd jobs turn into the district or did you, how did that end up coming to be? I became an AmeriCorps volunteer um, through the community college and I was placed at Awafria Elementary, which is now nigh early childhood center, but was an elementary school for decades uh, out at the end of Awafria. And um, I was there four days a week. So I was a full-time volunteer. And I basically said to the principal, I'm here to do what you need. What do you need? And I ended up doing lots of things which were in my wheelhouse, like fixing things or painting things or building things, but always with kids. And it happened to be with kids who were having a hard time being in class that day. They were having a meltdown or there just was some issue where they needed to go do something physical. They needed to get out of the classroom and get outside. And so I spent my day um, doing awesome projects on the campus at Awafria with kids. And I said, I want to do this for a job. I, I want this to be um, what I do every day. And so I went back to school and got another degree, um, this time in teaching licensure up at Northern. And I was working full time at our free at that time. You could be hired to be a teacher if you were in a teaching program um, and you had a certain amount of time to get your degree. And, uh, and I did that. I worked full time at our free as a teacher, fifth grade teacher. And I went to school on the weekends and in the summer and at night. And uh, here I am, 22 years later, still an employee of Santa Fe Public School. So it's been a really cool journey. Yeah. It really has. That's incredible. So were you, because of your background, was sciences your main focus or did you have another subject that you found a great interest in teaching? I'd say... Um, Social studies was my oh, favorite, favorite subject to teach because, you know, I've always had, I've always had a social justice kind of lens on the world. You know, I knew I was gay from being a, 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 a wee one. And so when you're part of a marginalized group, you have a different window on the world. And at least that was my experience. And so um, I always had this idea of using my time and my talents for the greater good and inclusion and bringing people into the fold. And I think that's part of always feeling excluded. Um, and so social studies to me was and is one of the most impactful content areas that we can teach and unfold. Unfortunately, it gets taught the least anymore, right? It's ELA, it's math, fit in some science and maybe read some stuff about social studies, right? I mean, it's, um, or study MLK on MLK day, right? We, and I, I think we feel that in our culture now that we are not grounded in our history and a true full history that honors the good and the bad. And so um, for me, social studies was really my favorite subject to teach. And I found that kids really engage. 
engaged. Um, and so I was more of a thematic teacher. I don't think I do very well now where we have 50 minutes for ELA and 50 minutes for math. And I, I, I just, I don't think that way. And I never taught that way. And it merged nicely into this sustainability realm, um, my point of view and my worldview. That's interesting. And I find so many teachers that I've spoken with, you know, on the podcast and off that their favorite subject or what their background is in is never the subject that they enjoy teaching. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I, I totally would have been like, oh, science is right up your alley working in the earth sciences and, and stuff like that. So to hear that social studies was um, kind of the, the one for you was very interesting. So how long did you teach for? 10 years, 10 years. And then did you, is that when you moved into this role or how did that work? Because I'm sure, and this is me just taking a shot in the dark, that sustainability in a sustainability department wasn't something that was around, uh, for very long. That's something that's probably on the newer side of things. That's definitely correct. Um, I taught for 10 years and then I realized that I, um, didn't want to be in that structured classroom environment, but I also wanted to reach more kids. And so I thought, um, being a principal would be an impact role to play. And so I went back to school again and I got my master's in instructional leadership. But in the time that I went back to school and I was still teaching, but I also said that I really needed to leave the classroom and whatever came about is what would come. And um, I wanted to make a space for that principal to fill that slot and not make her wait while I figured something else out. Right. And in the interim, this uh, energy conservation job came. That's what it was. It was energy conservation when we started because it was when um, we had the stock market crash and the real estate market crash and the recession and we were cutting millions of dollars out of the budget every year and we looked at our, um, as a district, this is before I started in this role, um, Bobby Gutierrez was our superintendent at the time. They looked at the utility budget and they said well, we've got to be able to spend some, or save some money here. Mm-hmm. And so they hired uh, an energy uh, conservation person. That job came available. I didn't really have training, um, but they knew they wanted someone who had experience in education. Um, And because we're such a particular culture, education is so unique. And so um, I was hired. There was no program, which was daunting, but also awesome because I got to build the program based on who we were as a district, what our needs were. Um, I got to, you know, really kind of roll things out in a way that worked for us uh, and, and go after savings or go after projects as they authentically came about. So it was, it was really, um, I've been the only one in this position. We started in 2010 and I was the first person to hold the position. So I feel really fortunate uh, to have had that opportunity. That, that's incredible. So when you when you moved into that position, obviously you built it up. What were some of the first things that you had looked at? What were some of the first kind of accomplishments that you had made? Because I was going to ask, I was like, that's probably around 09, 10. Yep. What were some kind of the first things that, that you did when you got on the job to, to kind of help with the budget and fix some of those deficits? Well, we looked at where we were spending money, right? All of our utilities, where do we spend the most? It was with PNM on electricity, right? Electric lights, electric heat, everything that we were plugging in. And electricity was probably, oh, I think it was like uh, almost $2 million. It was more than all of the other utilities combined. So we started doing lighting retrofits. We did our motion sensors, which I know make people nuts because they have to get up and do the hokey pokey in the middle of whatever they're doing. But we thank you for that. And it's good to move around anyway and do the hokey pokey. But we looked at 
things, um, anything that was inefficient or wasteful with lighting. Mm -hmm. And um, one of our board members, when this position was created, uh, said, you know, I, I don't know if we need a new position. We need more teachers. We need more EAs. We need more nurses. So this position has to save as, uh, as much as it costs the first year, or, or I don't think we should do it anymore. And that was Frank Montano. And I love that. I love, I took that as a personal challenge because, you know, he was right. We do need more teachers. We do need more nurses. We do need more social workers. But because of this position, you know, we, we save compared to our, our utility bills in 2010 compared to today, we save almost a half million dollars a year, what we spend now compared to then. And so we can hire more teachers and nurses and social workers and secretaries. And, you know, this last year has been difficult. The cost of natural gas has increased 40 percent. Our electric bill has gone up 15 percent. Um, we blew our budget by a couple hundred thousand this year because of our COVID practices, right? We're flushing the buildings in the morning, flushing them at the end of the day, keeping the fans going all the time. So we're just using more energy, yeah. but it's to keep our people safe. Yeah. So we and, have to. And with the HVAC systems, with the higher filters, they're having that's to right. run harder. You and, bet. And so, yeah, that's, that's interesting, but that was kind of one of the prices that wasn't really a factor in, into COVID and, and yep. it, it was what we needed to do. It's, it's not that we're, you know, begrudging that we're absolutely having to do not. It. No. It's, nope. it's just kind of the cost of what, you know, running, I mean, every room has an air purifier. That's right. We have upgraded HVAC systems with, with, uh, Murph 13, I believe yep, where it, we can, yeah, where yep. we can. Yeah. Yep. And those make the HVAC systems work harder. Um, so yeah, that's, yep. um, a lot yeah. of those lighting changes was probably before LED was a big thing, right? You bet. And LED wasn't affordable either. Yeah. LED right now is comparable to fluorescence. In fact, I was just reading something the other day that um, by January 2023, we're not going to import fluorescent or non-compliant oh, wow. bulbs anymore. And um, we're not going to be able to even sell them by mid-2023. And so go LED. They're just as, they're a comparable price. They'll save you money. They'll last longer. The quality of light is better. You don't have that humming and blinking and strange things that everybody hates about fluorescence. And, and for me, when I, <laughs> when I shine a camera at it, it's not giving me the waves That's and the little right. flickering and all of that. Yeah. yeah. LED about all the way. Oh. Um, so as time has gone on, so if this was 09, 10, so you've been in this position about 12 years. That's right. What are some, what would you call some of the big goals of what your department has done? Because, you know, there's some of the visible goals of the solar panels that are at Nina Otero and oh. at Santa Fe High. And, 13 sites we have solar. Yeah, 13 sites. And, yeah. And is it Kearney that is more than 50% run by solar? Yeah, about 65. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the biggest accomplishments over the last, you know, 10 to 12 years for, for the department? Well, I think solarization is the big one, Cody. Um, it's so important. And there's this whole movement now to electrify buildings because you can generate electricity through solar. And, um, and these systems, you know, they'll last for 30 years. And that's with today's technology. Who knows what it's going to yeah. be like in the future? Um, and these systems pay for themselves in terms of uh, energy bill savings in 12 to 14 years. After that, it's basically free energy. And so the more that we solarize, the better off we are in the short term and in the long term. And so that's a big one right now. The district's 25% solar powered, which 
which is pretty fabulous for a public school district this size. And 29 schools, you know, 11,000 plus students and yep. how many and faculty, um, a, a quarter of percent of, of electric is, I mean, that's yeah. pretty incredible. It really is incredible. And then I think, um, our other, something that you don't see, um, that you might know about because you, you know, sometimes you want to crank up the heat or crank up the AC, but we climate control our buildings. And so in the evenings or on the weekends or during vacations, or if a building's closed for the summer, we're not heating and cooling an unused space. We keep it at a minimum, a minimal temperature, um, but we don't leave the lights on when people aren't there. And we don't leave the heating and the cooling on when people aren't there. And you can't do that manually. You can't, you just can't have somebody run around, you know, hitting the thermostat to where it's supposed to be in the, at the start of the day or at the end of the day. And so we do that through um, HVAC controls, and that has made a tremendous impact in terms of savings. You don't really see it, um, and you might feel it because, you know, Sometimes you do want to like just a little chilly sometimes, sometimes in my office. That's right. And, and, um, but we never want people to be uncomfortable. You know, we shoot for 72 degrees year round, which is a pretty comfortable yeah. temp, I think. And, um, you know, we encourage people to wear a sweater or wear a lighter shirt. So, open you the know, windows, yeah. or open the windows if you need to, which is wonderful. The other one that I like that I also don't think gets talked about as much as the food wastes. Um, yeah, that, that one so is important. Huge. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the, what the program or the program or how we do with food, with food waste? You bet. In 21 of our schools, Reunity Resources, which is out at the old community farm at the end of Awafria, um, wonderful local husband, wife team, and then all the partners that they've brought to their incredible program. They pick up our food waste every Monday and Thursday to the tune of about 5,000 pounds of food waste a day, which is horrifying. But at the same time, it used to go in the landfill. And when it went in the landfill, it created methane, which is, you know, we talk a lot about CO2. Methane is nine times more impactful in terms of climate crisis than CO2. And so keeping food waste out of the landfill is, is a, a vital strategy uh, around climate mitigation. And so um, we've been able to minimize our costs for trash, right? Because we're not sending so much trash to the landfill. <laughs> our custodians are great. Our kids are great about how to collect it because it's a different process than just throwing everything in the trash. Um, but it's really amazing. And then we get Reunity Resources creates all kinds of fantastic soil products from that food waste. And so that ends up back on our campuses and our school gardens and on our landscaping. So it's a really cool, full circle, planet positive, fiscal wash, right? We don't pay more to do that. We just use our, our fiscal resources in a better way to do something really beneficial. The work you guys do is so incredible and it it's, makes me so happy. It's, it's, awesome. it's so exciting. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming. And if you want to learn more about the work that Lisa and the sustainability department do, uh, you can head to our website under the departments page. There's the sustainability page. Uh, it goes into detail about all the amazing things that the sustainability department does and, and really just the amazing work that Lisa and her team do. So I want to thank you for that. And to end the podcast, I'm going to ask the question that I ask all of our guests. What is the best piece of advice or guidance that you have ever received from a teacher? You know, teachers have been so impactful in my life and so it's hard to choose, but I would say it was a teacher at the community college, a professor, and she said, do what you love. The rest will follow. And it sounds simple, but uh, it has been a, a guiding light of mine for a number of years now. So as much as we can do what we love, the rest will follow. 